Tempa and Lindsay and I went to Seattle in June and we took our video camera to film the highlights of our trip. Came back with a two-hour tape full. And shortly after our return, we sat down to view our collection of memories. We were rather disappointed to discover that the first 25 minutes were taken in the airport and the plane. We've got film of Lindsay carrying her bags through the terminal. We've got film of Lindsay experiencing her first trip down the runway on her first flight. We've got film of the wing and the clouds over Helena, Montana. In contrast to that, we had about 45 seconds of the camp I was speaking at. We didn't have a real balanced picture of our trip. And I'm reminded of that in Acts chapter 20 because here the Apostle Paul takes a trip from Ephesus through Macedonia down to Achaia and back again. It's a trip of almost 1,400 miles. It takes him through at least 17 cities, most of them twice, going and coming. But Luke doesn't highlight the travel. He mentions the travel, kind of like a travelogue, but he highlights two significant events that happened in the midst of that travel. A meeting of Paul with the church in Troas and a meeting of Paul with the elders from Ephesus. And these two occasions combine to teach us some important lessons. Notice verse 1. And after the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And when he had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he departed to go to Macedonia. Now when the opposition was at its height in Ephesus, Paul couldn't get himself to leave, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Because he knew that since there were a lot of enemies there, he was right on the front lines of the spiritual battle. But now when the opposition has been silenced, Paul proceeds to go on his trip to Macedonia, pausing first to gather the believers and exhort them. Verse 2, And when he had gone through those districts and had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. Now we saw last week that Paul's primary goal in coming to Macedonia was to collect gifts to take to the poor saints in Jerusalem. You'll also remember in chapter 19 and verse 21 that Paul's plans after this were to go to Jerusalem, then to Rome, and then on to Spain. In his mind, he thought that he would never be back in this area again. And that's why in verse 25, he tells the elders from Ephesus, you will see my face no more. And so Paul doesn't just race through Macedonia grabbing the money. Instead, he accomplishes another goal. He exhorts the believer, believers. He encourages and challenges them greatly. Now, we're not told how long Paul spent in Macedonia. Some Bible teachers think it may have been as long as a year. Because in Romans chapter 15 and verse 19, Paul says that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Now, Illyricum is northwest of Macedonia in modern-day Bosnia. And this is the most likely time when he would have gone up there. And so verse 3 says, And there he spent three months, and when a plot was formed against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he determined to return through Macedonia. Paul stayed in Macedonia, then he went down to Greece. There he spent 
three months. He probably stayed there through the winter, as he said his plan was in 1 Corinthians 16.6. And while in Corinth, he wrote the letter to the Romans. And now that he's collected the money for the saints in Jerusalem, now that he's spent an adequate time in Corinth, Paul decides he's going to head for Jerusalem. Now, in all likelihood, it's right before Passover, and he wants to get there by Passover because verse 6 tells us that's upcoming. Right before Passover, they engaged many more ships heading for Jerusalem to take all the Jewish pilgrims there. And Paul planned to be on one of those ships until he found out there was a plot against him. It would be very easy for a ship full of Jewish pilgrims to just kind of lose Paul overboard on the trip. And that was the plot that was laid out. And when Paul discovered that, it says he returned through Macedonia. Verse 4, And he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and by Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. Now why are all these fellows with Paul? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul writes about the collection for the saints in Jerusalem. And here's what he says in verse 3. And when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I shall send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. These fellows are the representatives carrying the gifts from these churches to Jerusalem. Paul was very careful to have accountability. And so he names these fellows, Sopater of Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus of Thessalonica. That would include the area of Macedonia. Gaius was from Derby. Timothy, we know, was from Lystra. And so they would represent the province of Galatia. Tychicus and Trophimus were from Asia. And so he's covering the whole area of the Gentile churches at this time. Now, we're not going to take the time to look at each one of these fellows. There is one guy that interests me. His name is Secundus. His name means second. Paul just wrote the letter to the Romans, and the individual who penned that letter for him, we're told, in Romans 16, 22, was a fellow by the name of Tertius. His name means third. And while he's finishing writing that letter, he sends greetings in Romans 16, 23 from a fellow by the name of Quartus, which means fourth. So while Paul is in Corinth, we've got three fellows there named second, third, and fourth. Some think they were from the same family and they had unimaginative parents. <laughs> Verse 5, But these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, and we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days, and there we stayed seven days. These fellows crossed ahead of Paul and the others, from Philippi to Troas. Now, we're not told why. The only indication we have here is that Paul apparently wanted to celebrate the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread in Philippi. But I want you to notice something in verses 5 and 6. There's a pronoun change. Verse 5 says, they were waiting for us. Verse 6, and we sailed. The last time Luke used the personal pronouns was back in Acts chapter 16 and verse 12 when Paul was last in Philippi. And on that occasion, at the end of that chapter in verse 40, Luke says, and they departed. So apparently, Luke has stayed in Philippi this whole time. 
during this whole interval while Paul has been gone until he now returns to Philippi, Luke has been there. An interval of probably six years. And during that time, he has been ministering to this young church that Paul left behind. And that probably explains to us why there is no representative from this key church in Philippi because that representative would be Luke. And so after the Days of Unleavened Bread, which was a, a week-long festival, Paul and probably Silas and Luke sailed across to Troas. Now this was not a real long trip. In fact, in Acts chapter 16 and verse 11, we're told it took them two days going west. Now they're going east, it takes them five days, probably because they ran into a headwind. Troas, you'll remember, was the city on Paul's second missionary journey where he arrived there and received the vision to go into Macedonia. Now he comes there on this occasion. We're told in verse 16 that he was hurrying to try now to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost, and yet he pauses to spend seven days in the city of Troas. And at this point, the travel log opens up and we get to witness a meeting of the church in Troas, verse 7. And on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to depart the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight, and there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. Now we learned several things about the way they met and worshipped. First of all, we see the time. It says in verse 7, on the first day of the week. In the early days of the church in Jerusalem, Acts 2.46 says they met together daily. Over time, it seems that they slipped into a pattern of meeting once a week. That's what we see here in Troas. But they didn't gather on the Sabbath, Saturday. They gathered on the first day of the week, which was Sunday. Paul noted that same thing in writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16.2. He said you should make your collections on the first day of the week. Now, why didn't they meet on the Sabbath? Well, because passages like Exodus 31, 16, and 17 tell us that the Sabbath-like circumcision was given to Israel as a sign of the Mosaic Covenant. And since Christians are under the New Covenant, we no longer observe that sign. You say, yeah, but it's one of the Ten Commandments. Well, if you go through the Ten Commandments, what's interesting is that every one of those commandments is repeated in the New Testament except this one, to keep the Sabbath day, because this command is not for Christians. In fact, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, Paul lumps the Sabbath day in with things like the dietary laws, the festivals, and the new moons, and he says they are all shadows that pointed to the coming reality of Christ. And now that we have the substance, we no longer need the shadows anymore. In Galatians 4, 10, and 11, Paul actually rebukes the believers in Galatia because they were observing special days like the Sabbath. Because he says that indicates that you are turning away from grace and back to law. Why did they celebrate the first day of the week? Well, because that's the day when Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, it's also the birthday of the church. The church was born on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, which was a Sabbath day, which means it fell on a Sunday. Now, Sunday was not a holiday in the first century. It was a work day. And so they didn't have church on Sunday morning. 
They had church on Sunday night after they had worked all day. That's the time. Secondly, we see the place here, verse 8. It says they met in the upper room. Now, the first century church didn't have church buildings. They often met in homes like Lydia's in Philippi or Priscilla and Aquila's in, a, in Ephesus. Or in this case, they met in an upper room, which was probably a rented facility or a borrowed facility, much like the upper room that Jesus met in for the Last Supper. And this upper room in Troas seems to have been a rather large room because verse 8 says it had to be lit with many lamps. So we see the time, we see the place, we also see the purpose that they gathered together for. Two things took place in the meeting, the breaking of bread and the preaching of Paul. Now passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 11 indicate that the early church met together for a potluck meal. In Jude 12, it's called the love feast. They worked all day, then they gathered together in the evening and they brought food and they had a meal together and then in the context of that meal, they took bread and they took the cup and they remembered the death of the Lord Jesus. And in that context, Paul also preaches to them. But what's interesting to me is the thing that takes precedence among those two. Look at verse 7. It says, When we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them. Now, Paul had been in town for a week. Everybody knew he was there. You would expect this verse to read, When we gathered together to hear Paul. But it doesn't say that. It says, When we gathered together to break bread. You see, their purpose was not to hear Paul. Their purpose, primary purpose, was to remember the Lord Jesus. And so Paul preached on this occasion. Now it tells us he was going to leave the next day, so you would think this would be a good excuse to kind of cut his message short so he could get his rest. But he doesn't do that. It says here he preached until midnight, verse 8, and there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together, and there was a certain young man named Eutychus sitting in the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep, and as Paul kept on talking... He was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. Now, this has always been an encouraging passage to me. <laughs> because even the Apostle Paul had people go to sleep on him. Someone has described preaching as the ability to talk in someone else's sleep. That's what Paul was doing on this occasion. Now, now, Luke seems careful to give Eutychus the benefit of the doubt. He tells us there were many lamps. These lamps were kind of using up the oxygen in the room. They were gas lamps, so they may have been putting off a, a few fumes. He tells us also that he was a young man, and it was a late hour, and you can just imagine those flickering lights. They kind of have a hypnotic effect on you. And he's been working all day, and so he kind of builds some excuses here for Eutychus. And, and, and Eutychus had found probably the most advantageous seat in the house. He was sitting in the window where the air was as fresh as you could get, where the air was as cool as you could get, but about midnight, he couldn't fight it any longer. And it says here two things. It says he was sinking into a deep sleep, and he was overcome. Now, I've seen some of you sink into deep sleep. You want to know how that looks? Kind of go. 
You know, you're, you're, you're sinking, and you, you sink, and you sink, and when you're overcome, you just kind of go, <laughs> I can tell when you're overcome. Now, Eutychus was sinking, 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 and then he was overcome. The only problem was he was sitting in the window. And so he went out the window, and he went down three floors, and he was dead. Now, some people say, or, or question whether he was really dead, but you know, Luke was a doctor, and I would say he would know. And he says here, he was dead. Verse 10, but Paul went down and fell upon him, and after embracing him, he said, do not be troubled, for his life is in him. This is reminiscent of Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament. He actually laid on top of this fellow and embraced him. And he said, do not be troubled anymore, for his life is in him. He's not saying he hadn't died. He's saying that his life has returned. Verse 11, And when he had gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. They went back upstairs. Apparently, Paul had preached. They hadn't even eaten yet. And it's already midnight, and now they break the bread, and now they eat, and now they celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And everybody's awake at this point in time. And so Paul keeps preaching throughout the night until morning when he had to leave. Verse 12, and they took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. People don't get raised from the dead every day. And these people understood that, and it says they were greatly comforted. Scripture only records two such occurrences in the Old Testament, in the time of Elijah and Elisha. It only records three during the ministry of Jesus and two during the apostolic period. Dorcas and Eutychus here. Spurgeon used to warn his audience, if you go to sleep during the sermon and die, there are no apostles here to restore you. Verse 13. But we, going ahead to the ship, set sail for Assius, intending from there to take Paul on board, for thus he had arranged it, intending himself to go by land. Luke and the others took the ship around a point that jutted out in the sea that took them around about 40 miles. Paul cut across the neck of the peninsula about a 20-mile hike. Now, why did he do this? Well, the only indication we have here is that it says Luke and the others were going ahead. So this gave Paul a little more time to spend with the believers there. In fact, it's likely that they probably walked with him across the peninsula and fellowshiped along the way. Paul had been up all night, and yet he chooses to walk across so that he can spend more time encouraging and exhorting the believers there. And then verse 14, And when he met us at Assus, he we took him on board and came to Mytilene and sailing from there, we arrived the following day opposite Chios, and the next day we crossed over to Samos, and the day following we came to Miletus. Now they're making their way through the islands in the Aegean Sea off the west coast of Asia, modern-day Turkey, and it took them four days to get down to Miletus, which was about 30 miles from Ephesus. Verse 16, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus in order that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. There were 50 days between Passover and Pentecost, and if my math is right, 23 of those days have already been spent. 
So Paul has 27 days to get 700 miles to Jerusalem. And he knows he can't make a quick stop in Ephesus because Ephesus is where he has spent three years with these believers. They're like family. So he knows if he goes there, he can't break away quickly, so he chooses not to stop there at all. Instead, verse 17 says, and from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. He calls for the elders of the church to come to him. He knows he doesn't have time to go to Ephesus, but he can't pass up this opportunity to speak to the leaders of that church. And once again, Luke stops to develop this account. In fact, he records for us Paul's message. Nine of Paul's messages are recorded in the book of Acts. This is the only one that is not evangelistic. This is the only one that is not to unbelievers. This is Paul's farewell address to those who were called to lead the church in Ephesus. And in verse 25, he says, you will see my face no more. So this is what Paul would say to a group of leaders if he knew he would never see them again. What's he say to them? Does he give them an outline of his methodology for ministry? Does he give them seven techniques necessary for church growth? No. In the first part of this message that we're going to look at this morning, he talks about the godly attitudes that are essential for a leader. In fact, he's going to record four of them in verses 19 to 24. But what I like is that he doesn't just list them. He illustrates them from his own life. He doesn't just mention them. He models them. Notice verse 18. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time serving the Lord with all humility and tears and trials. Paul says, You know these things because I was with you living them out. The New Testament teaches that the heart of leadership is example. Jesus said in John 13, 15, I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. The writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 13, 7, to remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Peter exhorted his fellow elders in 1 Peter 5, 3 to be examples to the flock. And in 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul spelled out to Timothy how to be a leader. He said, in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. And so in verses 19 to 24, Paul models four godly attitudes. And they're demonstrated in four dimensions. Toward God, toward the church, toward the lost, and toward himself. And we'll go through them real quickly. First of all, toward God, verse 19. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. Paul is a leader of the church. He's speaking to leaders of the church, and yet the word that he chooses to describe himself in relation to God is servant. It's the Greek word doulos that means a slave. He is a bond slave of the Lord. Everything that Paul did had one goal in mind, to obey the Lord, to please the Lord. And then he underlines three marks of a bondservant of the Lord. Number one, 
He's humble. He says he did it with all humility. Now, it would have been easy for Paul to be proud at this point in time. He was an apostle looked up to by people. He had just raised a man from the dead four days before. He was the most influential man in the entire church, having planted most of the Gentile churches throughout the world. And yet he can say to these people at Ephesus, you saw me for three years, and I served in all humility. He just recently wrote the letter to the Corinthians. They had wanted to elevate Paul and Apollos and others and put them on pedestals. And Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians 3, 5, and he says, what then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believe. Don't elevate us. We're servants. Key mark is humility. Second mark, he's broken. He says in verse 19 that he served the Lord with tears. Three things we know in Scripture brought tears to the Apostle Paul. One is he cried over the lost. In Romans 9-2, Paul says, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Why? Over his kinsmen who were separated from Christ. He didn't just frown on his neighbors. He didn't just criticize those around him who were lost. He cried over them. Second thing he cried over were Christians who were struggling to grow. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians because that was a church that was struggling with unrepentant sin. But did you know that 1 Corinthians was a tear-stained letter? Paul wrote about it in 2 Corinthians 2.4 and he said, Out of much affliction and anguish of heart... I wrote to you with many tears. And in our chapter, down in verse 31, he says, For a period of three, three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. He cried over Christians as he worked to them, with them as they struggled trying to become what Jesus wanted them to be. And then there's a third thing he cried over, and that was false teachers. In Philippians 3.18, he says, For many walk of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul shed a lot of tears. But you know, the tears of a servant of the Lord are not in vain. Psalm 126.6 says, He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. To those with caring, compassionate hearts who faithfully spread the seed of the Word, God promises a rich spiritual harvest. Third mark of a servant. He's suffering, verse 19. He says, I'm serving the Lord with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. The Jews plotted against Paul from day one in Damascus, and it's been nonstop since then. In Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, Ephesus, he's been stoned, he's been driven out of town, he's had to flee. And most recently, we read in verse 3 of our chapter that they plotted to do away with him. And there's more to come. The words that the Lord spoke to Ananias when Paul was first saved in Acts 9, 16 were being fulfilled. He said, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. And so Paul had a godly attitude toward God. He saw himself as a servant, humble, broken, and suffering. Secondly, he had a godly attitude toward the church in verse 20. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. In relationship to the church, 
Paul was a teacher. He was always instilling truth in people. He was doing what he said a leader ought to do in Ephesians 4.12, equipping the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And here he says, I did not shrink from that task. He didn't tell people what they wanted to hear. He didn't tell people what was popular. He tells us here that he told them what was profitable. Now what is profitable? 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Paul taught the Scriptures because they are profitable. And he taught them in two ways. One was publicly. When he first came to Ephesus, he taught in the synagogue publicly for three months. Then he went to the school of Tyrannus and taught daily for two years publicly. But also he taught privately because he says here he taught from house to house. He took the truths that he proclaimed publicly and applied them to individuals and families in their daily concerns. And so toward the church, Paul was a teacher proclaiming God's word. And then the third godly attitude that he expresses is toward the lost in verse 21. Solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The word testifying there is an intense word. It's it's the word used by the rich man in Luke chapter 16 and verse 28. It tells us there that he died and went to Hades. And in torment there, he begged that Lazarus could go back and warn, that's our word here, warn his five brothers lest they come to this place of torment. Now, he wasn't asking for a casual witness. He was asking for something intense. And Paul says, in relationship to the lost, I have that same kind of passion. In fact, so intense was his passion that in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, he cried out, Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. And what was Paul's mission field? Everybody. He says Jew and Gentile. What was his message? He says repentance and faith. Those are two sides of the same coin. Turning from sin, repentance, embracing Christ by faith. And so Paul's godly attitude toward the lost was that he was passionately calling them to repentance and faith. Which brings us to the fourth his godly attitude toward himself in verses 22 to 24. Verse 22, And now behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem. In Paul's mind, he was bound in spirit. He had already surrendered his will to the will of the Lord, and there was no turning back. And so he says, I am bound in spirit. I have already surrendered myself, my will, my wants, my desires. I am bound in spirit going to Jerusalem. And then he says at the end of verse 22, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. Paul says, I don't know all the details, but I know when I get to Jerusalem, I've got bonds and afflictions awaiting me. You say, well, how could Paul go there knowing that was in front of him? Verse 24 But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. 
That's a great verse. Paul says, I received this ministry from the Lord Jesus. He gave it to me. He took me, a, a, a Christian killer, and he saved me, and he gave me this wonderful ministry. And he gave me the privilege to share with people the good news of the grace of God. His unmerited favor toward man. And so Paul says, all that matters to me is finishing my course. And Paul uses an accountant's term here because what he really does is he puts my life on one side of the ledger and he puts finishing my ministry on the other side of the ledger. And it's an either-or proposition. Paul says, in order to finish the course that the Lord has given me, I have to let go of my own life. Because if I hold my life dear, I'll never finish the course. Did Paul finish the course? Yes, he did. At the end of his life, he wrote 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7 where he said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. When, the, when you reach the end of your life, don't you want to be able to say with Paul, I have finished my course. I have completed the ministry that the Lord Jesus gave me. And I'm going to be awarded the crown of righteousness. If so, we need Paul's perspective toward God, serving. Toward the church, teaching. Toward the lost, evangelizing. And toward himself, sacrificing. I wonder as you sit here this morning whether that describes you. For some of you, it may describe the way you used to be. It may bring to your memory the way you were at a previous time in your relationship with the Lord. But it doesn't describe you today. Today you identify better with Eutychus. You're in the church, but you're asleep. You're spiritually sluggish and about to fall out the window. Paul wrote to the Romans about a month and a half before he arrived in Troas, and here's what he said in chapter 13. The night is almost gone, and the day is at hand, and it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. If you see yourself today in a spiritual slumber, the Lord is giving you a wake-up call. I'm going to ask Christy to come back and she's going to sing for us, and after she does, I'm going to close in prayer. And as she sings, I'm going to ask you to consider the words that she's saying in this song and make them your prayer today to the Lord.